Father, as we open your word now, uh, remind us that uh, when your word speaks, that you um, yourself speak, and, and that your word is not just uh, a book to teach us how to live, but it, um, it shows us a person, it shows us you. Um, and so help us to, to read these words, to take in this truth uh, with a desire to know you more, um, to be more like you, um, and to do that for uh, the sake of your glory, your name. So do that now through the preaching of your word as we listen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, open with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, and we're going to be in verses 38 to 48 for this evening. Let me go ahead and read it for us. Matthew 5, starting in verse 38. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of God. As we wrap up chapter 5, we are at Jesus' final two, uh, you have heard it said, but I say to you, statements. And uh, as we've gone through this, we've said that in each of these statements, Jesus uses these examples of Old Testament law to clarify and to illustrate this kind of surpassing righteousness that he talks about in verse 20, right? A, a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, and, and unlike their righteousness... Uh, we learn that a true obedience that pleases God, right? A true obedience that God is looking for is not just about how close you can get to the line without crossing it, right? How how close you can get to this commandment without breaking it, but it's about reflecting God's character. And as we've gone through this, hopefully uh, you've been convicted of this, just seeing that God does have a high standard, right? Like he cares about our hearts. Well, if the Sermon on the Mount wasn't already convicting enough, And we arrive at our passage tonight, and uh, John Stott, the commentator, he describes this passage as both the most admired and the most resented. He says that nowhere is the challenge of this entire Sermon on the Mount greater, nowhere is the distinctness of Christian counterculture more obvious, that nowhere is our need for the power of the Holy Spirit uh, more compelling. Because in our passage, as we just read, Jesus talks about loving those who are hard to love, loving those people who have wronged you, or those who don't deserve your love, or those people who don't love you back. Um, One of the things that Jesus talks about in these verses is revenge. 
And so as I was prepping the sermon, um, I was kind of trying to think through like sermon illustrations, Googling, things like that. And uh, as I was like just reading on the internet, like it was eye-opening to see how much stuff on revenge there is out there. Like there's entire movies, um, entire songs and albums that are written about revenge, um, about getting back at the person who took something from you or getting back at the ex who broke up with you. Uh, we see it on the internet, we see it on social media. Even this past week, uh, I saw this video of this woman who had gotten fired from her job and she like recorded like that conversation um, on her computer and she posted it on the internet. And the company didn't really do it the right way. They weren't like super straightforward about it and they were kind of like not transparent about it. So they, they were at fault. But she posted this video and when the rest of the internet watched it, like people got angry. The CEO had to apologize and she even got offers from other companies because like people watched this video. And granted this company, like I said, should have handled it better. But the point is we live in a culture that says that you get what you deserve, right? You pay for what you do wrong. You should be right at all costs. You, you, you get even when others wrong you. And so it's no wonder why Jesus's words here in our passage tonight are some of the most uniquely Christian and some of the most countercultural. Because the love that Jesus describes here requires us to be willing to give up all of those things that the world insists that you have to grasp onto, right? Your own rights, your own merits, um, how others have treated you. Christ-like love requires you to let go of that. Everyone that you talk to will say that love is a good thing, but when the rubber meets the road, Jesus says that the true nature of your love is revealed by the people who are hard to love. And as you hear me say that, maybe already there are certain uh, names and certain faces that come to mind. Uh, and so as we go through this, it might actually be helpful if you like, think about those specific relationships or that specific person as we go through this. Um, but we'll look at this in two different headings. And, re and really, there's just one big idea um, throughout these two passages, but we'll look at it in two headings. Point number one, love not just those who are deserving, but even those who are undeserving. Look again at verse 38. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So in verse 38, Jesus quotes this statement that shows up a few different times in the Old Testament. You can find it in Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, 20, and then Deuteronomy 19, 21. Um, and even if you didn't know that it was in the Bible in those three passages, you've probably heard this statement before, right? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth because it's just something that people say. Um, but as, is, as often happens when something just enters pop culture, we've kind of moved away from the true meaning of this, right? I think most of you or many of you probably have a misconception of what that phrase actually is supposed to mean. Uh, for example, Gandhi, who was, uh, of course, known for nonviolence, he once famously said, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. And in other words, like what he's saying is, if it's all about getting even, then everybody loses, right? And we hear that phrase and we, it sounds harsh and mean and unforgiving to us. But if you actually read this in the original context, like that was actually what this law was trying to prevent. It simply said that the punishment should fit the crime. And so uh, on one hand, right, it, it was strict. It was supposed to be this deterrent to wrongdoers that you're not going to be let off easy. You're not going to be... Uh, given this lenient ruling 
if you did something wrong just because you're wealthy or just because you're privileged or you know the right people. So it was this deterrent. But on the other hand, it also protected against excessive rulings. Uh, it was meant to stop this kind of escalating, this, this vicious cycle of retaliation and revenge. Right? It said the punishment needs to match the crime. If you steal some bread, you're not supposed to get your hand chopped off. Right? It needs to match the crime. Another important law Another important part of this law wasn't just the punishment itself and the severity of it, but who had the right to enforce that punishment. And when you look in those passages, we see that this law was given to the authorities. So people like the rulers, the government, the judges. And uh, that's important because it was intended to keep people from taking the law into their own hands. But what had happened is that People in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the scribes, they had started to take this one specific law that was intended for public justice, and they made it the law for all of life. Right? They made it the law for all of their personal relationships. It's like how we saw last week, the Pharisees had taken this Old Testament law about divorce as if it like, encouraged and even commanded divorce even though Jesus says, no, that's not what the law is about, right? Marriage is sacred. Divorce is never what God desires. Divorce is only a concession to the hardness of man's heart. But they did the same thing with this law. They adopted it as the rule for their relationships. They said, okay, it encourages my personal bitterness and my revenge and my retaliation. And if you treat me this way, then I have to respond in this way. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth to us might sound ancient, but... All of us have felt that urge before, right? All of us have felt that urge to get even when someone wrongs you. And in those situations, just like maybe think back to your recent example. You think to yourself, like, oh, I'm just going to match what they did to me, right? No, you want to get more, right? You're like, I'm going to get them back so bad. Like they need to know that what they did to me was wrong, that it was not okay. I mean, that is our default setting. Um, John Piper, he says that we are spring-loaded to return evil for evil. I, I think that's such a helpful picture. But what does Jesus say? Verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And that word resist, it means to oppose um, or to withstand or to, to set yourself against someone or something. Um, and just to clarify, like, I don't think Jesus is saying that in the face of wrongdoing, you are like, you're not supposed to do anything ever. Okay. Just to put that out there. He's not sweeping evil under the rug. And we said earlier, these were passages that were given to, uh, the judges, right. To be enforced by the court. And we see something similar in the new Testament that Romans 13 shows us that God does care about evil. He does care about wrongdoing. He's established rulers and government who are supposed to promote good and to punish evil. He says that uh, the government is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so God has given us this like avenue um, to deal with wrong. And sometimes it is necessary and appropriate to protect yourself, to remove yourself from a dangerous or bad situation, uh, to pursue legal action, to utilize something like law enforcement for the purpose that God has intended. At other times, resisting and setting yourself against something wrong is, is appropriate because it's the most loving thing to do. Um, if you remember back in Galatians 2, there was this conflict between Paul and Peter, right? Where 
Paul rebukes Peter because he was being a hypocrite. Basically, he was preaching this gospel, and yet when uh, the Jews came, he withdrew himself from the Gentiles. And Paul uses that same word. He says, I opposed him to his face, and I resisted him. He rebukes Peter for his partiality, and he does that for Peter's good because it was the loving thing to do. Uh, and it was, it was preserving the, the, the truth of the gospel. Right? So it's not like this. we never do this ever. This, what it looks like to apply Jesus' teaching in every situation requires careful wisdom and discernment. And yet at the same time, we shouldn't try to explain away Jesus' words here either. Right? This is something extremely radical. And this is something that is hard. And this is a response that is completely countercultural to our default mode, right? We are spring-loaded to return evil for evil. And this goes completely against that. And to help us understand that, we see this in four different illustrations that Jesus gives us in verses 39 to 42. And as we read through this, I think we probably get what Jesus is saying here with each of these, right? Some of these, these have even made it into just the things that we say, like turn the other cheek or go the extra mile, uh, but let me just point out a few things from, from some of these that we might miss uh, so we can feel the full weight of Jesus' words here. Verse 39, he says, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So uh, the most significant thing about slapping someone on the right cheek, it wasn't just inflicting some physical harm. Okay, um, Although I, like I saw recently there's like this professional sport that's like, slap fighting and that looks like it hurts like <laughs> they're like out cold but th this wasn't just about physical harm right this more than that it was about uh it was extremely insulting to slap someone on the right cheek because if you imagine this with me right you're facing the other person assuming most people are right-handed a slap on that other person's right cheek means that it was a backhanded slap right uh, you guys get the picture? I was going to bring Viet up to demonstrate. <laughs> but Jesus says that even if someone insults you like this, right, this backhanded, extremely humiliating gesture, even if someone degrades you like that, offends you like that, he says, in love, be willing to give up your honor and your reputation. Verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So a tunic is like a shirt that you wear. Uh, it's what people wore underneath. And then you have your cloak, which is on top. And your cloak is for warmth and for protection. And it was so important, actually, that there were Old Testament laws, um, Exodus 22, 26 to 27. There were laws that prevented someone from keeping another person's cloak overnight because they used their cloaks for, as like a blanket, right? Like to keep warm. Like it was that important. And Jesus says, if someone sues you and asks for your tunic, be willing to pay more than is required, right? Be willing to give up something that even the law protects. In other words, in love, be willing to give up your rights and the things you feel entitled to. Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, back in that day, the Jews uh, were under Roman rule and uh, the Roman soldiers basically had power or authority to just enlist Jewish civilians to basically carry their stuff from one place to another. But if you guys remember Jesus on the way to the cross, they do this with someone, right? With Simon of Cyrene, they 
enlist him to, just, to carry the cross for Jesus in Luke 23. And the Jews hated this because it was a reminder that they were under Rome's thumb, that they were, under, they were subject to this opposing government. They would have done this begrudgingly. And Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. In love, be willing to give up your service. Be willing to do something for people who would take advantage of you. Be willing to serve someone who would ask you to do things that you think that you should not have to do. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I think that one's pretty straightforward, right? Be generous. Be inclined to give. Don't give reluctantly or under compulsion, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, but give cheerfully. And when you might be tempted to refuse uh, or turn away or withhold from those who have wronged you or from those who you think don't deserve it, Jesus says, be willing to give up your resources. And so in, in all of these illustrations, these four scenarios, Jesus is taking aim at the same propensity in our sinful hearts. And it's this, it's our obsession to get what we think we deserve. Our obsession to get what we think we deserve. Or our impulse to give others what we think they deserve. Right? And of course, we might not put it in those terms. We might call it something like fairness instead. Like, oh, I'm just, I want to be fair. But we are constantly keeping score of people. Right? Of all the ways that they are doing good to you and all the ways that they, they, they are doing wrong to you. And then we treat people accordingly. Right? We keep score in our minds. And yet, be honest, is our version of fairness always truly fair? Is it always right or is it just right in our own eyes? I mean, we talked about this in, when we went through the passage on anger. In the heat of our sinful anger, we make ourselves judge, jury, and executioner. Right? So we don't, we're not seeing this clearly. And yet we hold people to this standard. We give them uh, what we think they deserve. If we're really honest, we are inconsistent. That we might acknowledge our need for God's grace and we give thanks that he hasn't given us what we deserve. And yet we turn around and we resent when others get better than they deserve. If you read through the book of Jonah, that's what his issue was. If you read through the parable of the prodigal son, you see the same thing. Begrudging God's grace, resenting when people get something that we don't think they should get. And Jesus' radical words here call us to an entirely different standard, an entirely different operating principle for our lives and for our relationships. He says the law for your relationship should not be, oh, I deserve this or you don't deserve this. But he calls us to be ruled and guided by love, by mercy, by something that is not based on what others have earned. Right. This disposition that renounces bitterness and retaliation and is willing to risk even more suffering for that sake, right? Even if it means giving up your honor or your reputation or your rights and your privileges and your service and your resources, like we said in those four illustrations. And in 1 Corinthians 6, there were some in the Corinthian church who had grievances against one another. And uh, what they were doing is they were actually dragging each other to court. They were suing each other. And Paul looks at that and he writes to them and he's like, what are you guys doing? 
Like to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. And what Paul is doing there is he's, he's not like putting down the judicial system. Okay? He's not saying that going to court is bad, but he's saying that the world will behave like the world. But as Christians, we are called to be different. He says in, in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, why not rather be wronged? Like why not rather be defrauded? He shows us even in the face of very real wrong, you don't always have to be right, even if you are right. You don't always have to be right for the sake of love. And guys, that is so hard for us, right? Like we always want to have the final word. If someone does something to us, we have to like at least do something. Like show them it's not okay. This is not right. And Paul says, why not rather be wrong? And this is how we can operate as Christians. Why not rather be defrauded? So what about you, Beacon? Take inventory of your own life. What rights are you demanding? Like, what do you feel entitled to? What, what do you feel like you, you need to be right? And things in this area in your, in your life, they need to be fair, right? They need to be equal. Who are the people in your life who you love less because you think they deserve less? Is there bitterness that you're harboring against someone and because of that, you just can't treat this person in the way that God calls you to treat them? Where is Jesus calling you to be willing to say, why not rather be wronged instead of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12, 17 to 21. It says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, don't miss some of the things he says there, right? Like, he still calls evil, evil. He says that God sees, he's going to judge, he will avenge it in the end. I mean, even in this life, Paul acknowledges that there's going to be times and situations where it's just not possible to live peaceably with someone else, despite your best efforts, right? So he makes like all these disclaimers. He's not minimizing this. And yet, how often do we just discard, disregard all of this, right? And instead, we are the ones who, who raise our fists and we say, vengeance is mine. Like, I will repay. And what does Paul say? Verse 20 continues, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, when you read that word overcome, uh, you should picture like military language, right? like being overpowered by an army. And, and Paul says, do not be overcome by evil. Don't be overpowered by this bitterness, this poison. He says, if you're constantly keeping score, if you are just constantly consumed by this vengeful spirit, when, whenever you don't get what you want, then you're going to be overcome by that. Eventually, you're going to become that kind of person. And the only antidote to this poison of bitterness and revenge, Paul says, is to overcome evil with good, to do good. As someone once said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to realize that the prisoner was you. And I think this helps us realize that Jesus is not saying here, like, just be a doormat. <laughs> like, just let people walk all over you. Like, don't say anything. Like, just, yeah. 
weakness, right? Like, and we're afraid of that. We don't want to be known as that. But think about it. This is not weakness, but this is something that requires great strength. I mean, this is a self-control and a love for others that is so powerful that you are able to reject sinful retaliation. When someone cuts you off on the road, what is harder to do? To give into that anger and to like honk and, and cut them off or like swear at them, give them the bird or to just let it go. Right? And to show forbearance and mercy. What's harder to do? And obviously, Jesus is the greatest example of this. While he's hanging there on the cross, the scoffers, the the crowd, they are mocking him. And they say, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross and save yourself. That he he saved others. He cannot save himself. I mean, they are like striking at that exact nerve. They're saying, Jesus, you're weak because you're on the cross. If you're so strong, then prove it to us. And friends, we know that he proved it not by coming down from the cross, but by staying on there, by bearing our sins. And he did not save himself so that he could save others, right? For our benefit. So Paul, just like Jesus says, we resist revenge. We don't let ourselves get overcome by evil We're also to go beyond that, right? Not just not doing something, but we are to go beyond that to an active love. We're to go beyond the refusal to uh, repay evil to the resolve to overcome evil with good. And not only should you stop dwelling on getting what you think you deserve, but you should be actively seeking to love others better than they deserve. And that leads us to our second point. Love not just those who love you, but even those who don't love you back. Verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, in verse 43, Jesus quotes from Leviticus 19.18. Okay, and uh, if you were to turn to that passage, you don't have to, uh, but you would see in Leviticus 19.18, you would see that phrase, You shall love your neighbor. You'd see that it's in there. But you would also notice that hate your enemy is not in there. Okay, that, that verse talks about not taking vengeance or bearing a grudge against the sons of your own people. And it says, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So how did this happen? How did Jesus get this, uh, what we have here in Matthew 5? Well, likely the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they read that verse and they they read phrases like the sons of your own people, right? Like caring for the sons of your own people. And they took other passages in scripture, Maybe like the imprecatory psalms where uh, the psalmist is praying like prayers against their enemies. And they took it to mean that, okay, if I'm commanded to love my neighbor, which is my friends, my family, like my kind of people, then I should also do the opposite to anyone who's not my neighbor, right? To to the Gentiles, to, to those who are unlike me. If I'm called to love my neighbor, then maybe that means I'm called to hate my enemy, In fact, one of the phrases that was floating around in one of the Jewish communities in that day was this, love the brothers, hate the outsider. And in verses, uh, we said earlier in verses 38 to 42, right, we saw that people took one law, this this like kind of random law about public justice, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They took this one law and they made it the law for their relationships. Well, here the people have taken not just like a random law, but one of the most significant laws, 
This is the second greatest commandment, Jesus says. Love your neighbor as yourself. And they are still trying to manipulate it to their own ends. I mean, you might hear that and you might think to yourself, like, that, that seems like a huge leap, right? To go from Leviticus 19.18 to you shall hate your enemy. Like, what, what kind of Bible school did you go to? Right? You should learn how to read your Bibles. But I don't think it's really all that surprising. Because, first of all, Scripture does actually give us another instance of someone asking the same question of who is my neighbor um, in Luke 10. And in that passage, that's where we get the famous parable of the, Samar- the, parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? You have this lawyer go up to Jesus. He says, okay, who is my neighbor? And in that parable, um, it wasn't the priest, it wasn't the Levite who stopped to help the person in need, but it was the Samaritan. It was the outsider. It was the enemy. And Jesus says that your neighbor from that story is anyone who crosses your path. Your neighbor is anyone that you find yourself in a position to help. And in fact, if you actually read carefully, the parable is less about who is your neighbor and more about are you a good neighbor? Who who proves to be a good neighbor? And so we shouldn't be surprised because it shows up somewhere else. But even more significantly, this shouldn't be surprising to us because we ourselves are guilty of this same thing. That we try to rationalize Christ's high standard of love and we try to make it manageable, right? And we try to make it convenient for ourselves. And we excuse ourselves by making it more about who we are obligated to love, right? We focus on, okay, then you say neighbor, who's my neighbor? And we focus less on how we're called to love. What does Jesus, what does Leviticus 19.18 say? It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? That is a high standard of love. And again, Jesus exposes our human tendency and calls us to a better way. Verse 44 he says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I know that uh, that word enemy might seem like a strong word. Uh, I don't know if you consider yourself having any enemies. Many of us probably don't have like you know, like an arch nemesis, like a, a Gary to your Ash Ketchum. I don't know why that's the example I thought of. Um, maybe some of you do, right? Maybe there is that like one person that is like the bane of your existence. Or maybe you think of, okay, there's a few people that just really make life hard for me. And I think Jesus leaves it general enough for us. It's those who persecute you. It's those who, who harm you, who antagonize you, right? those who dishonor you and, and frustrate you. It's those who make things hard for you. And sometimes those might be your closest friends, right? Or, or your family or your spouse or your kids or other people at church or even people in this room. People are hard to love sometimes. G.K. Chesterton, in his usual humor, he put it like this. He says, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because generally they are the same people. And just as we saw earlier, love isn't just about refraining from bad things, right? It's not just like, okay, I'm not going to take revenge, but it actually moves towards others. It actually extends grace to those who don't deserve it. It blesses the one who would curse you. It seeks the good of the one who wrongs you. And this love, I think, can look a lot of different ways. Maybe it's something very simple. Uh, In verse 47, Jesus says it's just greeting someone, right? Greeting someone instead of ignoring them. But... To do that, it means that you have to be willing to initiate, right? That means that 
You have to be willing to go out of your way to look at people, to look out for people that you might not be inclined to love. It might be something practical like meeting an enemy's physical needs. Romans 12, it says, um, give them food, give them water. You look in verse 44, the specific application that Jesus gives is to pray for those who persecute you. And I think that's convicting because that means that praying for your enemy uh, or praying for your enemy is a little bit different than just like giving them a cup of water, right? And both are important because praying for them actually means that you want their best. Like you actually desire their good and you're going to God on their behalf and you're asking God for, for their good, for, for their conversion or their repentance or protection or you're praying for your own heart. Now, what is the motivation that Jesus gives? Verse 45. He says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you want a theological term for that, we call that common grace. It's the grace that that God showers on all people, uh, both good and bad. Uh, Verse 46, he continues, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? It's not hard to get Jesus' point here. That anyone can love those who love the Mac. That anyone can love those who are easy to love. Jesus says even the Gentiles, even the tax collectors do that. And by the way, his mention of tax collectors is interesting because the tax collectors were Jews who had sold themselves out to the Roman government. They were traitors to their own people. They, they were driven by self-interest. They were driven by personal financial gain. Basically, they pledged their love and their, their loyalty to whoever would pay for it. And that's what Jesus says. Like, that's what you're being like. If you just love the people who are easy to love. If you only love others because of what's in it for you and what you can get back. If those are the only kinds of people that you love, then at some point you have to ask yourself, Are you really loving them? Or are you just loving their love of you? Why should how someone treats you affect how you love them? Do you want to know if you are really loving? And what about those people who don't love you back? Loving your enemy is hard. And it is unnatural, but it is the kind of love that God shows us. Jesus says, and Jesus says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. He's not saying that somehow you like earn yourself um, into God's family based on how well you keep this commandment. Now, he's not talking about that. He's talking about family resemblance. Right? If you are a son of your father, then you resemble your father. It's like how people say that you are the spitting image of your parents. That you look like them. You act like them. You reflect their characteristics. And Jesus says one of the most powerful most significant ways that we can imitate God, that we can show God off to a watching world, that we can reflect him is when we love those who don't deserve it, when we love those who don't love us back, because that is the kind of love that God shows. And his love does not discriminate like ours so often does. He sends sun and the rain on the just and the unjust. And 1 John 4.12 says that when we love like that, We get this opportunity to bring God's love in this real and tangible and visible way into our relationships. It says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, 
God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Or another translation says his love is brought to full expression in us. It's a similar idea in verse 48, right? Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Uh, we've said throughout our series, verse 48 shows us that, shows us that this surpassing righteousness that, that Jesus talks about is not just about obeying commandments, but about reflecting God's character. But I think specifically how it ties in with our passage for tonight is it shows us that this is perfect love. Right? This is a love that is whole and complete and pure. This is a love that is unlike the world's cheap, conditional version of love. And there is no greater way for Jesus' disciples to reflect the perfect Father than by showing this perfect kind of love. And yet we read that, right, that standard, you, there must, you therefore must be perfect. And we realize that we fall short. And none of us reads this and like walks away feeling good about ourselves and thinking, oh, like I've loved difficult people so well this week. Right? We, we read this and we say to ourselves, like, who can do this? Like, you, therefore, must be perfect. Who can do that? Like, what hope do we have? Uh, some of you might be familiar with uh, Corey Ten Boom. She was known for helping many Jews escape from the Nazis during the Holocaust and World War II. Uh, and uh, what she and her family did is they hid uh, Jews who were on the run in this like secret room in their house. They called that room the hiding place. Uh, it's actually the title of her autobiography. Eventually, Corey was eventually uh, betrayed by one of her neighbors and she was arrested. And she was sent to the Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany where she would endure unimaginable suffering. And during her time there, she would have to watch her own sister, Betsy, die. Miraculously, she ends up being released from the concentration camp due to a clerical error. And actually, that happens just a week before all of the other women in her same age group would be sent to the gas chambers. So truly, a work of God's providence. And so she's released. And if you were in her shoes, what would you do with the rest of your life? Like, what kind of person would you be after having gone through all of that? Well, after the war, she opens up their home again. And this time, it's not an escape for Jews on the run, but as a place of refuge and healing for those who had collaborated with the Nazi regime. Um, one biographer says that the home that had once been the center of underground resistance now worked to heal the very persons who had betrayed them. She was ministering to her enemies. Right, to those who were part of the Nazi regime. And every so often we'll hear about an example of radical love and forgiveness like this in the news. Maybe you can remember um, those in the Amish community in Pennsylvania who forgave the man who shot and killed five children at a schoolhouse or uh, the Coptic Christians in Egypt who extended forgiveness to their ISIS persecutors. And every once in a while we'll hear things like this and we will look with awe and admiration at examples of that, and, and we think, to, or, or we tell ourselves, like, we're just not built like that, right? Like, these kinds of people are just on another level. Like, I could never do that, nor would I ever probably be in a position to have to do that. But I think if Corey Ten Boom were here, she would say that that's not true. It's not because these people are extraordinary. He would say, you can't just muster up 
like this kind of love on your own strength. You can't just produce it if you like grit your teeth and you just try hard enough. Now, there's a specific moment from her autobiography that illustrates this. It's after the war. Um, she's just finished speaking somewhere, and um, she actually encounters one of her former prison guards from the concentration camp. And this is what she writes. She says, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the shower door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly, it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. And he came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message. To think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. And his hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who preached so often... The need to forgive kept my hand at my side. She says, I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And I can lift my hand. I can do that much. Jesus, you supply the feeling. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a genuine love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. My eyes filled with tears. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. And I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Here's the key part. She says, and I so discovered that it is not on our, forgive, our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on Christ's. That when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. Like I said, none of us looks at Jesus' perfect standard of love and, and walks away feeling good about ourselves, right? We have fallen short in so many ways, but Jesus does not ask us to do, the, to do what he has not first done himself. And guys, when it feels utterly impossible to, in love, turn the other cheek, you can look to Jesus who was spat on, who was beaten, who was humiliated, and yet it says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, that when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That when everything in you wants to grasp on to your own rights, your own privileges, your own entitlements, your own version of what's fair, when you want to resist going the extra mile for your enemy, you can look to Jesus, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And you would rather be tight-fisted with your service and your time and your resources rather than generously use them to serve the person that you think doesn't deserve it. You can look to Jesus who for your sake became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. 
And when the idea of praying for your enemy and desiring any ounce of good for them is just absolutely bewildering to you, you can look to Jesus who prayed for his enemies. And he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know whether they are doing. Romans 5 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For once, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while you were undeserving, while you were still God's enemy, Christ loved you. And the good news for us is that his, not, his love is not just this standard that we're supposed to meet. It's not just an example for us to follow, but it is what transforms us and enables us to love the way that he does. As Corey ten Boom says, when he, loved, when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with that command the love itself. You know, in Luke chapter 7, um, Jesus is eating at a Pharisee's house. And there's a woman, and uh, actually the passage just identifies her as a sinner. Right? There's this woman who walks in, and much to the Pharisee's indignation, she starts to wash Jesus' Jesus's feet. She does it with her hair, anoints his feet with ointment. And it is this really interesting scene, because you could not have any more polar opposites of society in the same room. Right? The Pharisees and this sinful woman. And do you remember what Jesus said to those respectable and those religious Pharisees who knew, who had all the head knowledge? He says to them, he who has been forgiven little loves little. If you don't recognize how undeserving you were, if you don't recognize how much you have been forgiven and loved by God, then you will be stingy with your love. You will withhold your love. You will limit it only to those who you think deserve it. But if you recognize that you have been forgiven much, then you will love much. And so here's what you can and here's where you must start if you want to grow in this. Can you see how God has loved you? Can you see how God has been merciful to you, how he has treated you better than you deserve. Can you see how he continues to shower his love on you even now? When you think about your life, can you point to specific examples, specific evidences in your life and give thanks for them? How well do you know his love for you? And as you meditate on that, you realize that God's love for you is not cheap. It's not shallow. It's not easy. It's, It's not dependent on your own merit or what you've done. And, and then you begin, you begin to see that it's not your easy relationships that illuminate and magnify the beauty and the depth of God's love, but it's the hard ones. Right? It's those people who are hard to love that you really put the beauty of God's love on display. 1 John 4, 7-8 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your help to live this out. We know that it is such a high standard. It is an impossible standard if we were to just depend on our own strength. And we thank you that you have first loved us. That you have sought us out even when we were your enemies. Even when we were undeserving. We didn't want anything to do with you, and yet you gave us far better than we deserve. 
So Father, I pray that that love would be um, amazing and wonderful to us, that we would, uh, that they would never grow old to us, that even as maybe we've been Christians for a long time, that we would continue to see the ways that you shower your love in our lives each day. And I pray that as we, we see that, as we understand that, Lord, that you would transform our hearts um, to love in the way that you do. That we would be, be, be people who realize that we've been forgiven much and so that we would love much. And so shape us by your word. I pray for our time in small groups now that uh, you would help us to have just honest and transparent conversations. Um, bring to mind just specific people, relationships, situations that we can apply the truth of this passage to. Help us to be humble before one another and before you. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.